the HubSpot thing just kind of fell in my lap. I actually started my own company, raised a million bucks for it. And um, Darmesh, our co-founder, was one of my investors, and I just helped him one day a week as part of the deal. And then Brian got came in. It was literally Darmesh and I sitting in a room for like three months talking about what he wanted to do. He recruited Brian, and Brian was just like, just go sell. If I have you for one day a week, just go sell. Hey, everybody. Uh, whoa, I haven't done an intro in a while. Kind of have been busy and lazy, and so I've just been posting episodes, but figured I would come on and say hey and do a quick intro for this one. Um, this episode was with HubSpot's Chief Revenue Officer, Mark Roberge. Talked a lot about the early days of HubSpot and a lot of the stuff that's changing in the way that uh, HubSpot and other businesses are doing sales today. Had a lot of fun. Got to sit down with Mark uh, live at Drift. Uh, just kind of had him over for lunch and thought we'd record a conversation with the team. So uh, stay tuned for more of that in the future. But for now, here's Mark Roberge from HubSpot. Um, so the first question I was going to ask you is, how does a MIT, how's a guy with a, MIT, a degree from MIT and a you know, engineering background end up running sales at HubSpot. Mm, completely ac- accidental, <laughs> serendipitous. Um, yeah, I mean, my journey leading up to MIT was um, very much a, like kind of a passion for entrepreneurship. I started, you know, I started my career in the late 90s, and believe it or not, for most of you in the room, you were probably in elementary school or whatever. Um, entrepreneurship was not very well known as a, a career path for someone that went to a top, a tier one, tier two, tier three school. I think it was kind of known as like, you know, your neighbor started a plumbing business or, you know, like, you know, it just, or maybe when you were older and had experience, you might like start a PR firm or something. And obviously around that time, the whole late nineties was exploding. And I just started following it. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I jumped shipped after two years at Accenture and, a couple of partners had started a mobile company and I down in New York, and I did that for a couple of years. You know, it was one of those 10 people scaled to 200, raised a bunch of money, scaled back to 10 people after 2001. So it, it didn't lead to anything like successful, but the learnings were amazing and the validation of this is my passion, I want to commit my professional career to it was great for me. And but did you have to like figure out sales? Were you like, I'm an engineer and I have to figure out? Like I have to figure out how I get pain and how I talk to people. And yeah, a little bit. I mean, at that time, I wasn't doing a ton of selling. It was just like, I want to go, I want to do entrepreneurship. So that led to like, I should do a good MBA. And I went to MIT and I figured out through there that I need to find my place in the entrepreneur ecosystem. And I don't think I loved product enough to want to go in that direction. So it was really between sales and marketing. And I loved marketing because it was, um, it was a little more conducive to what you learn out of MBA with analytics and all that kind of stuff. I love sales because I love the front line talking with people. And, you know, I, I, was, I knew I was going to be starting a family and I, you can get paid a little more in sales. So, like, there was, there, that was the trade-off. And then the HubSpot thing just kind of fell in my lap. I actually started my own company, raised a million bucks for it. And um, Darmesh, our co-founder, was one of my investors. And I just helped him one day a week as part of the deal. And then Brian got came in. It was literally Darmesh and I sitting in a room for like three months talking about what he wanted to do. He recruited Brian in and Brian was just like, just go sell. If I have you for one day a week, just go sell. And that was really what caused me to go into it. And then, you know, a year later, I couldn't get my startup going and they were about to explode. And 
um, they wanted me to come in and run sales. So, so that's, that's how I ended up there. Um, my dad was actually a sales coach, so he was pretty instrumental in the early days of the belly-to-belly stuff to teach me like, how to navigate more of a consultative sell. You know, I think like most MBAs and most people who haven't been in sales, you perceive selling as like the pitch master, very convincing, just like they're you just like there's this mystique they hypnotize you and then you buy a product and that's what selling is yeah. and you can't predict it there's a thing like uh i think it was with like San- there's a thing uh we used to study like sandler sales yeah. and there's a story about like the vacuum guy comes to your house and just dumps a bunch of shit on your floor and he's like how are you gonna clean that up yeah. dude I, it's so funny i actually did that in my teenage i sold for this company filter queen and it was this like it was literally like a two-hour pitch it was the most yeah. awkward thing so I guess I had a little sales experience before, but like, so literally, I don't know why I respond to an ad in a paper and it was this patented thing where it was an amazing vacuum cleaner, but it was a thousand dollars. I mean, it was, it was amazing. It just like, you, you literally would drop all the stuff down and you take, where's your vacuum cleaner? And you take it out and you go over it like 20 times and then you put a little filter on the filter queen and just go over it once and show them all the dust it's missing. Then you drop down this like steel ball. And you'd suck it up with it and just go through and it wouldn't break it. So, and then you yeah, just walk out and right. they're like, wait, Mark. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you literally would. None of the sales would occur. You'd be like, I'm sorry. I just need to use your phone. I swear <laughs> to God, this is what happened. I just need to use your phone. And you'd call them up. Make sure you call them from where they could hear you. And you'd call the main office and you'd come up with some story about how this is the reason why they're not buying. And then you'd be like, oh, really? You can do that? And you'd go back and I just talked to my boss and they can give you like... I mean, that was like, that was really I just got approval selling. from my boss or 20% right. off. Right. Yeah. And, and that's not, you know, what I quickly learned was selling, the way I break it down as simply as possible is it's about quickly building trust with a complete stranger, whether it's over the phone or in person, so that you earn the right to figure out what their biggest nightmares are today. What are the biggest problems they're working on? What are the biggest opportunities that they're chasing? Yeah. And then ask yourself, do I solve that well? And if I solve that well, tell the story about your solution in a way that connects with that. And if you don't solve it well, either they're focused on the wrong problem and you've got to educate them on that, or they are and it's just like refer them to one of your friends. That's, that's really the, you know, how, the simplest way I can, I can talk about that. So how, how, does that, how does that, I want to talk about like how that works in the early days yeah. when it's kind of like, so when you were at HubSpot, the team was what? There's couldn't have been more than five people. people is you, yeah, exactly. you Volpe, Darmesh, yeah, and Brian, exactly. basically. Yep. So that sales pitch is great, but like at the same time, wasn't it still the Wild West when it came to like startup sales in the early days? Like the products always breaking, or you don't know who your good customers are. Like, how do you yeah. take that stuff and apply it to, you know, almost where we're at the early stages, yeah. which is like, it's not easy to instrument everything. There isn't yeah. always a process. Yeah. So. I think anytime you have these types of questions, it's interesting to dive into what happened for us, our contacts, yeah. what we learned from it, and then see if we can abstract it out either to you folks or just a general startup, right? right? So for us, we're talking about 07, 06. We're talking about crushing the content marketing, so there's tons of people coming to us. We're talking about SEO is just coming out of like its early stages of being adopted by like the media companies and becoming mainstream. So there was just a lot of obsession over Google. And that was you know, ranking high in Google, and no one knew how to do it. So that was really the, the hook that, that we had, was we had a lot of folks kind of coming to us. In the very early stages, from like zero to 
30 customers, it's all referral-based, network-based. You guys know a ton of people. You don't need to cold call or even deal with like really cold leads at that stage. You should be working with the folks that you know yeah. are your buddies. Is that is that always good though? Like, um, I feel like it could be easy to get 20 people to sign up, but that's not always a good indicator of your future customers and are these people going to be willing to pay? If you can go door to door and say, well, like, I think I think you got to have them. You got to get them to pay or have some sort of commitment there. Yeah. Like you, you lean on the relationships to get the warm foot in the door, and you skip that part of the selling process that I talked about, that building the trust, because they already trust you and they can really pick their brain. And you don't want to like, you know, you don't want to sell something that's not going to be valuable to them. You want to make sure they have skin in the game. In fact, it'd be nice if you can get moved over to someone that's not your buddy that might be more of the buyer, right? right? But at least it gets you in the door. And then after that. Um, you know, again, the hot thing then was how do I rank in Google? And the conversation was just all about that website strategy, nothing to do with the software. And that was, I don't know if that was right or wrong, but I remember when our second salesperson came in, Dan Tyre, and he was like, he was like, all right, this is awesome. You know, Halligan's like, yeah, Robert's has been pitching this stuff for six months. It's been going great. Tyre was our top rep at Groove, our last company. Robert's just teach Tyre how to do this. And Tyra's like, okay, great. What are we using? Are we using WebEx? Are we using GoToMeeting? Where's the pitch deck? And I was like, for what? <laughs> and he's like, well, aren't you, well, how do you demo the product? I was like, demo the product? Like, do you want me to show them the product or do you want me to close business? Because those are not one and the same. You know, and then they were like laughing about that. It was like, I have screenshots, maybe. I don't even want, I don't even want to show them because that's going to hurt the sale. You know what he's, I mean? he's over there shaking his really head. This is, <laughs> this is years before, yeah, years before, years before the DC and Alias, uh, you know, regime came in. But, but, um, so, so that was kind of interesting was, you know, when you don't, and, and, and honestly, software salespeople over rely on the demo. And when you, f when you actually can get something all the way to a close without even showing the product, I mean, that, that just shows you that you're super focused on the vision, value prop, and their particular problems. And it, it worked out. I mean, hey, again, our situation was we closed everything on the sun. We closed plumbers. We closed into it, right? We just, we just felt like this mission applied to everyone. We got to 1,000 companies super fast, paying us reasonable $100 a month, not like freemium, thousands yeah. of customers. And churn was off the hook, but it was a big enough volume that we could take a step back and say, okay, where's the sweet spot? And then triple down on that. So when was the moment that you, you realized like, holy shit, we're, we're onto something. This is going to be a real big company. Was it a certain number of customers or just, you just like kind of probably like last week, I would say. <laughs> last week, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's on. on when was the last degree, earnings call? Yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, it was like, yeah. I don't know if there was a time like that. I mean, maybe, I, honestly, like to some degree, it sounds funny, but standing up in front of the New York Stock Exchange, ringing the bell is like possibly an answer. You know, like, because every, every, it's crazy, the whole ride. I mean, you guys are going through it now. Like, even once you get to 100 customers, you get to 1,000 churns off the hook, you don't, you're crazy, you don't know if you'll be able to come from, back from that. Every year we hit a problem, whether it was like salesperson morale or product stability, all these things can sink yeah. the company. And Dharmesh and especially Brian had a leadership approach, which was, I think, right and something I learned from them, which was as entrepreneurs, even when we were 20 million, 50 million, 70 million in revenue, when a huge problem happened, like sales morale, product stability, 
um, customer success, mm -hmm. they made a bold decision so extreme that it would literally sink the company if it didn't work. But they recognized that that's what it took. Can you go in, go into one of those? Like, give a tactical example, whether it's a churn thing or morale, or, or like how you yeah, guys like churn. Let's take churn. That was an early one. Um, we were crushing it. Like we were we were bringing customers like crazy. Like I said, hundred to a thousand cu cu uh, customers within like six months. But churn blew up, and at the time we probably had fifteen twenty reps, and you know we were selling this thing for two hundred a month, whatever. They were like, we're doing all annual contracts, annual paid up front. So we went from having to pitch this like really kind of risky product that people didn't know if it worked for 200 a month to having to charge like 3,000 a year up front from landscapers, which is a big deal. And then we completely changed the compensation structure to reward every rep that had great churn, even if they were selling not a lot of software, yeah. and seriously penalized every rep who was selling tons of software but a high churn. I mean... You could con completely kill the customer flow. You could have a mass exodus of all your salespeople, arguably some of your better ones. But it's like, none of that happened. We so wait, I, uh, so just like more tactically for yeah. the, on the sales side. Yeah. So the traditional model was, if you're a sales rep, you just do everything you can to close this deal. Once the deal is over, the money's in the bank. Like, I'm good. I don't need yeah, to do anything Yeah, and I, you know, I've, I've published some of this stuff if you want to see it in like Harvard Business Review. But just like the the journey of a sales comp plan as you grow. Like the first one needs to be very hunter oriented. You just, you have no customers. We need customers, right? So it was like, you close a, you close a $500 a month deal, we'll pay you a thousand bucks, $2 on the dollar. And you keep the commission as long as that company is there for four months. After four months, it's yours. But if they churn before four months, we're taking the whole you know, money back. Perfect hunting plan, 100 to 1,000 customers in six months. But the, the churn rate on the customers was month one, zero, month two, zero, month three, zero, month four, zero, month five, huge. <laughs> right? So like reps work their comp plan. Yeah. Right? So, so fine. It was great. And then we just switch it to a very you know, retention-oriented But you plan. can game it that way, though, because you're like, oh, I'm going to schmooze you until month three, exactly. and then I'm out. You just stay yeah. out. Yeah. Right? And Mark, so how are it? How you is it? You can sign everything? a four-month yeah. contract. Four-month contract. Never heard of a four-month contract. No, it's just a four-month contract. That's what we do here. You know, like, reps will do anything for the plan. We're changing the game. Exactly. <laughs> and so, like, and that's just the first phase. There's multiple phases on that. And, you know, it really is, that's one of the under underappreciated tool for the the CEO even, even outside of the sales, is the comp plan once you start scaling a sales team, yeah. is they typically defer it to, delegate it to the VP of sales who implements it from his or her last company. Totally wrong move. It's all about what, are you, what stage you're at, what behaviors you're trying to drive, what strategically is happening, even outside of sales in the broader company, and how can I work that into my comp plan? Super powerful yeah, lever. Well, you know, uh, DC has given this talk a couple of times, I think it's kind of related, which is mm. like... Uh, about, you know, we're all about be, being customer driven, but the only way to really have a customer driven company is to align the incentives of every team to promote mm -hmm. customer success. Mm -hmm. So like if you say, okay, get me a thousand, a hundred thousand visitors to our website this month, like it's easy to game that yes. number and figure right. out how to do it. Yes. But if none of those people turn into happy customers then that's not the right. Exactly. It's, I think it's like, there's certainly this undocumented field that's cropping up of like, across-the-board metrics-driven management, right? Like, so much more of the operations can be boiled down to key metrics that we don't appreciate. You know, I think even, like, you talk on the product side around product success and the power of weekly active users, the power of an NPS that's taken every single month and solving for that, the power of, like, 
you know, taking a small engineering team and assign them to a, a true adoption number on a particular feature. And on the sales side, you know, how we use metrics to drive the ideal hire, how we align sales and marketing. Like there's, there, you know, because of prob- probably part of this like data explosion, there's this whole new philosophy around data-driven management that we don't, hasn't quite been codified yet, but it's in there. Yeah, or especially applying it to, you know, probably 20, 30 years ago, you wouldn't try to instrument the sales process no. with data. You just exactly. kind of do things. You just like, you hire a 42 long ex-athlete, give them a territory <laughs> yeah. and a pitch book you and play tell some them golf. to go. And that was, that was sales strategy. And it's, it's, it's amazing how many companies still do that. But it's, you know, given all the movements of inside and freemium and easier data collection, um, there's so much more of a science to it. How do you guys keep hiring uh, good people? Like you had a small team and it's, you know, easy enough to find 10, 15, 20 people that you want to work with. But now you have to grow a sales organization of hundreds of reps. How do you how do you keep that bar so high? Like yeah. it's, it gets hard. Or you're going to hire bad people. Yeah. Um, pretty early on, I realized that especially in sales, and I think this happens in a lot of situations like in engineering for sure. Maybe not at marketing in marketing at HubSpot, or maybe not in customer success because there's a nice brand there. But like, there wasn't a lot of success in hiring active candidates that were inbound, especially early days. Like when I first had opened up a bunch of recs, I posted job ads on, you know, Monster and LinkedIn, all these places. I think I got like a hundred resumes within a week or two. I think I did like thirty phone screens, maybe fifteen interviews, and hired zero people. And I realized through that process, especially for sales, that great salespeople don't ever have to interview, right? Like KK, um, you know, like Kim Walsh is calling him every quarter <laughs> and being like, are, you, are they still on business? Because you always can come back here. And that's, that's what it's the life of a good salesperson is, is they're getting calls from their ex-boss all the time. Like, hey, I've gone off to this company or you're always invited back. So you never have to dust up your, re- put your resume together. You never have to go out and apply a job. You always have those opportunities. So that set up a light bulb for me in recruiting is we need a passive recruitment strategy. We need to get at those passive candidates. And there was a really good recruiter. I forget where he was from, but he said, you know, corporate recruiters, and Keith's the only one here is a good recruiter, so he won't take offense to this, but <laughs> like corporate recruiters, and I hate to generalize, but this is the, the reputation out there. Yeah, I'm not one, so fire okay, away. Yeah, exactly. yeah, say what you need. They're, you know, they, you hire them in, they don't make the most money, they're on a complete salary, and they don't go after passive candidates. The first thing they do is hire an agency to source for you. They essentially kind of push resumes around, put people between the interview rooms and and gather feedback. Agency recruiters, they're, they're really aggressive. They, they make a lot of money. Sometimes they're half base, half commission. And then like, <laughs> and then like that was good. Yeah, and, People um, that are listening you know, won't know what just happened, but yeah, that was good. Yeah. I was just posing for the camera. Um, so you um, half base, half commission, and, and they make a lot more money, and they pound the phone. These are the folks you guys get called on every day and, and pinned in LinkedIn. And so the, this person told me, build an agency recruitment function within your company, right? And I was fortunate to find a couple of recruiters over the years that were like, you know, like uh, Leslie Mitchell, I think she was like 28 when I found her, and she was about to leave the agency world to start her own agency. I was like, great, do it in HubSpot. Like, whatever you had for a vision for your salary, for your strategy, 
let's talk about that and let's go build this agency within HubSpot. So that, that was the key was going after yeah. those passive folks. The last tip I'll give there that's usually pretty popular is um, this concept of the forced referral um, where you know every company um, will go out and post, hey, 2,500 bucks if you refer a friend, we hire them, et cetera. But it wasn't until we'd say, okay, Dave, um, I want to meet with you tomorrow for 20 minutes to go through your network. We're connected on LinkedIn. Tonight, I'm going to spend half an hour on all 275 of your connections and go through and search for people who are in Boston that went to good schools that have two or three years of sales experience. And we're going to go through that list of 25 people. And you're going to tell me if they're good or not and how well you know them and if you can introduce them. And you'd be amazed in that meeting. It's like, oh, like five people were on the list are like, oh, why didn't I think of her? You know, she's awesome. Of course I can introduce you. So, you know, once you wait a couple of months and let that new employee marinate in your culture a little bit, um, you'd be amazed yeah. how that force referral works to, to get it great. Well, it's talent. like, it's, you're just applying the sales mentality exactly. to the recruiting process. You really you know are. that. Yeah. So many of the, the way you run through metrics, yeah. you're sourcing, you run them through the funnel. So many of the sales philosophies apply to good recruiting. All right. So maybe let's spend the last 10 minutes talking about this part, which is, so you, you do this, you know, grow HubSpot and then you end up taking on HubSpot sales. What's the official name? Yeah, HubSpot yeah. sales. Uh, HubSpot yep. sales, okay. Yeah, started as Sidekick, now it's HubSpot sales. All right. yep. Like, why'd you want to go into a spin-off a new company inside of yeah. HubSpot versus just keep hanging out? And- uh, I'm an <laughs> entrepreneur, and also it's what Halligan wanted me to do. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like he, he wanted to bet really hard on that space and yeah. send a signal to the company and the market to go in that direction. And, you know, I think... He wanted someone to bring the domain expertise, but also like a modern view on it. Yeah. Um, so that was, uh, you know, it was really exciting. I got to team up with uh, C. Todd, Christopher O'Donnell, to learn a ton about the product strategy, which was great. Um, and I got to recruit Brian Belfour to run our marketing side. And gosh, I mean, it's just like you measure an experience like that on how much you learn. And by learning... Yeah. Given the the days and the months that went through, it was like off the charts to learn about both the product side as well as the growth marketing yeah. side. Well, um, well um, yeah. what did you learn that was different? Because you go from selling something yeah. that's you yeah. know twenty five hundred bucks yeah. a month to free. Yeah, sure. And that's completely different. It's just an appreciation around this go to market strategy, you know. And I think again, this is an area that's just starting to be codified a bit. Of you know, when we started HubSpot, I think we regret not taking a swing at more of a freemium approach in the early days. Yeah. Part of it was due to our lack of understanding. Part of it was due to just like the consumer wasn't as Uberized, you know, as they are today, if that's the right word. And they, the, this model hadn't really um, been. Well, it's, it's, out. it's actually like it's the exact opposite of the sales process you initially described, which is you never see the product, you yeah, buy exactly. and then you use it. Exactly. Whereas this model is like, go ahead, right. test the product, then call me if you need something. Exactly. So it's. It's all about low time and effort to value, stuff that you guys focus on a lot. And in the, in the marketing vision, um, it was challenging because it's really, like there is no low time and effort, low time and effort to inbound marketing. Like it just, that's the nature of the vision is it takes many months to extract value. So it's really difficult to come up with that. Further, it's really difficult to start here to 300 a month and go backwards once you have thousands of customers. So this has been a really, we, we learned from that and got to start from the ground up on all these lessons with HubSpot sales, built Sidekick, hundreds of thousands of weekly active users, and how do you build a sales team around that? So I wrote an interesting article about how even the industry, like 
some so many natural connotations around sales management contradict and hurt the freemium process. So let me give you an example. Most sales compensation plans reward sales reps more for the first dollar in revenue from a, a new customer than for upgrade revenue, right? So because like it just makes sense. It's really hard to open up a door and get someone to start spending money with you than it is to say, you're already spending money with us, just spend more. What does that right? mean? They get a bigger percentage of the initial, yes. like you might get 50% exactly. versus 20%. And then it's less, like, that's, that's a very common standard in sales. And it makes sense given where things come from. That puts salespeople at odds with a freemium model. Because the whole point of a freemium, freemium model is to reduce friction so that folks can get engaged with the product, gain trust with it, prove value, and then expand. And so what you find is, you, you, as a product and marketing side, you implement this beautiful low friction engagement process, and you get reps calling in being like, the customer's like, I just want to start with the basic product and two seats. And the rep is like, no, you need to start on enterprise with 100 seats, <laughs> because that's how their compensation is designed. And there's a whole bunch of standards like that yeah. So that's an example of what I did was when, when we put our first four reps into the HubSpot sales arena, first off, I chose folks who weren't looking for, I want to make 200% of my compensation. I chose folks who were like, I really just want to be part of something new and fresh and figure it out. Right. That was really important. And then once we hit our stride and went into the next year, Halligan was like, all right, this is great. Hire 20 reps. Let's go. And here's, and we sat with finance and figured out what the revenue stream would look like if we hired 20 reps and went. I was like, guys, here's the deal. I'll take the revenue goals, fine. I'll take the expense, fine. I don't want to hire the 20 reps. Give me, a, give me a second. What I want to do is tell our four guys that the plan is to hire 20 reps, but I want to give you guys the opportunity to spread this demand amongst yourself and raise your productivity as opposed, get really creative, use technology, use your smarts, and try to be three times more efficient as opposed to hiring these 20 folks. Now, every quarter we'll look at it, and if you fail, I'm gonna have to make the hires, just means less demand for you guys, and I also comp them less for the opening sale and more for the follow-on sale. And, and one of our reps who's like a real aggressive guy, he's like, hey, Mark, well, that means if I get someone on the phone and they wanna buy 50 seats, I'm just gonna sell them two this month and 48 <laughs> next month. I was like, fantastic. <laughs> Because that's exactly what I want. I don't yeah. want to take the churn risk of 50 seats that might right. be a bad fit. And no one's going to upgrade 48 seats if it doesn't work. Yeah. Right? So, so there's a whole bunch well, of It like changes new, the whole philosophy. of, it of this. It, Sales becomes the coach and the marketing exactly. or, or whatever, sales expert to, exactly. to help drive that adoption. Exactly. Um, all right. Let's, last one I wanted to get to before we, we do Q&A. Yeah. So uh, we're at Drift. We are big... Learning is a big theme for like our culture. What's uh, what's the last book that you read that you'd share with us? I'm actually in the process of listening to Influence at Work by uh, Robert Cialdini, which is exciting because I have an email in my inbox from him. Yeah. I'm gonna have lunch with him next week out in Austin. So it's just it just happened to. If have you guys read that one, really good stuff. He's super. He's like one of those academics, he's out down in Arizona State that has done tremendous research in the world of sales, mostly in persuasion, has some really good lessons that come from it. And I just noticed that he was keynoting right after I'm keynoting at a speech and I reached out to him and I think we're gonna have lunch next week. What are you so gonna talk fun. to him about? I'm actually gonna talk to him a lot about the move to academia 
and explore that a little bit. But I'll also probably try to hit him up to come speak at Inbound this year and like <laughs> nice. do a blog article and see if he's interested in that nice. as well. Cool. Thanks for doing okay. this. Appreciate it. No worries. It. Yeah. Thanks right. for having me.